I'm James, and this is the Chats with James podcast. In this episode, I'm chatting with Mikhail Nitschinger. This episode was recorded on the 28th of December, 2020. For more episodes and show notes, visit jamesmunns.com slash podcast. New episodes are released every Tuesday. Enjoy. Special thanks to Louis Zong for the music. So, how's it going? I know I just asked you that, but now I have to ask you again when the, uh, <laughs> the recording is rolling. No, uh, it's been going well. I think uh, Christmas uh, was, was good, and uh, I hope for you as well. Yeah, same here. Very quiet. Had some Christmas nachos. How about yourself? We we did uh, raclette. Ooh, like, nice. Like the, the grill with the, with the meat and stuff. Yeah, that, that yeah. was good. Uh, it, it's nice because everyone can just pick what, what, what they want, right? So mm-hmm. um, it's not just one dish, but rather a couple in one. <laughs> yeah, raclette is super good. And yeah, and usually most people in... I don't, I don't have one of those little raclette sets, but like a couple of my friends do. So usually we have... Like when we have uh, more people gathering, someone has one of those like little six dish raclette yeah. uh, sets and yeah, it's super good. Oh, now I'm going to have to get a raclette machine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, they're actually not that expensive usually. So I should be, yeah. should be good to do. <laughs> I, 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 I saw that you, you have a very different schedule than I have. Like I saw you posting at 6am or something this morning on Twitter. Yeah. My sleep schedule has always been really horrific. Yeah. The, the day before I I've been like slowly migrating my sleep schedule. Like this happens whenever I go on vacations, my sleep schedule just starts drifting like an hour or two every night until I like roll over. So I'm (laughs) currently in like us central time sort of, but yeah, (laughs) (laughs) I know we've talked a bunch on, on matrix and on Twitter and things like that. Yeah. Uh, Do you want to give yourself a quick introduction? Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, my name is, uh, Michael Nitschinger. I'm based in Vienna. So I guess I'm, uh, pretty much south south of you right now in Austria. Mm-hmm. I work for Couchbase as a software engineer. So my day job is basically writing database drivers, uh, mm-hmm. mostly on the JVM, um, but I've been with Couchbase for eight years now. So like if, if you're with a company for, for that long, like you have your hands in all kinds of things. <laughs> yeah, uh, That's just how it goes. But yeah, so my day job is basically writing database drivers. And I picked up Rust around 1.0 uh, a little earlier and it was just one of those languages where so so like i started with php in school a long long time ago right and then i kind of evolved always a little lower in the stack of sorts mm-hmm. and but rust was the first language where it really like clicked for me in the sense of okay this is a language that i'd like to use in my free time as well right i mean i do lots of java in my day job and it's all right. I'm 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 productive. I can do whatever I want in it, and it's 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 all fine. Um, but like with the Rust, it's just it's it's just fun, right? Like if, and for me, like I know that many people, and and you you know the same, right? It's like oh the board check and all that stuff. But for me, from day one, it was just fun, right? Of, of course, sometimes like you you want to pull your hair out, but still, it's it's fun. So that's how I how I got into Rust. But of course, mainly doing backend stuff, CLI tools, like auxiliary stuff for, for my work, things that I'm interested in. But then in March, I got, um, so I've, I've always been into coffee, uh, just for fun, doing filter coffee, all that stuff. And then in March, um, for my birthday, actually, I got an espresso machine. Oh, wow. What kind did you get? So it's a Rancilio Silvia. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's like... It's not 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 like super duper expensive, but it's it's like one of those machines which can get you very very decent espresso if you know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course, what you always do is like you start researching on the internet, like what can you do with it? <laughs> <laughs> and and of course, the next thing I saw is I stumbled into this world of PID controllers and like mm. all, all the things like people hacking on their coffee machines. It was like, what what is this, right? And there there is a mostly German-speaking group, uh, mostly in Germany, um, where they do um, PID modifications for the Rancilio, Silvia, and they do it with an ESP controller and on top of Arduino. Mm-hmm. And so so I was like, okay, let, let me try that. I'll, 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 so, I, so I bought those pieces, but like I was like, hmm, but I, I want to use Rust, right? Uh, because like I, I can't be bothered with all this C code and it's like ah I, I, I don't really like it. 
So I was like, okay, let, let, let's get, let's, let's try to run Rust on it. And then as you know, like with the Espressive CPU and the LLVM fork and all those shenanigans you need to pull off to get Rust running on the ESP. I was like, ah, I, there must be something easier. And, and that's why I stumbled on basically embed, like that's when I got into embedded Rust and saw, okay, there is the NRF board, which seems to have good support. Um, it has like a CPU that's is an easy target, et cetera. And that, that's like how I got into, into that side of things. And then I was like, okay, now, okay, let, let, let's write this uh, PID controller for my coffee machine from scratch. Like, because, because like you can buy very good PID controllers all bundled up on the internet, right? So you pay 200 mm -hmm. bucks, you, you get it shipped, you, you get those kits, like they, they, they tell you how yeah. to mount it, but it's just half the fun, right? I'm like, okay, I want to do it from scratch. I want to learn and figure out what, what all this is about. And mm -hmm. that's how I ended up pretty much porting a couple of those C libraries that the project from Germany, what they use basically for their Arduino project, I ported it over to Rust because I had Very the need cool. for it. Like there is the TSIC temperature controller, which doesn't really have, a, like the, there is no Rust equivalent or there wasn't. So I was like, okay, that sounds like a fun exercise. Let's start porting that from, from C to Rust. And that, that actually also got me more into blogging again. Like I have my blog for a long time. And as it always is, like for people, you blog and then you stop blogging and then you blog again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but now, now that I did the, started doing the embedded work, like I found myself blogging more. Um, so I, I did the TSIC port from C to Rust, which then I found very annoying because I don't own an oscilloscope and mm. I didn't own a logic analyzer at the time. And the temperature sensor uses a, a one-wire protocol called SecWire, yep. which... I, I don't think it's used anywhere other than with 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 that sensor. At least I haven't found anything else. Like I looked at the C code for Arduino, and it had a couple of weird pieces, and there were like it slept for let's say twenty milliseconds. I was like, why is it sleeping? Right? I couldn't figure out. There wasn't a good documentation. So now I, I got a Celia logic analyzer um, mm -hmm. recently, and started digging into it, and and like finally this this world opens up where like you you, you see actually things that are going on and like you, you can start understanding them. So yeah, that, that, that's, that has been my journey. Then I also ported the PID. So real, real quick for the, yeah. for the coffee control, does it just have a, like, are you removing the main control board in it or does it have some kind of like auxiliary <laughs> plug or something like that, that allows you to like <coughs> modify it or work with it? Or is it a total, like you've pulled the main controller board off and replaced it with your own controller board? It doesn't even have a controller board. Um, in, in that sense. So what, what really happens is basically like it, it is very much like I think what probably me mechanics would say that they get like a VW, like an old one mm. and they go in, into the machine and like all the pieces are there not much electronics, right? It's the same here. The, the Sylvia is, is pretty simple inside. So what I did was, so basically it has, um, I don't think it's mechanical, but it, it's like very simple temperature sensors that sit on top of the boiler and mm -hmm. over a certain temperature, basically they open up uh, they're closed and that's how they control basically sending voltage into the heating element. Okay. So what all those PID systems do is they just basically remove the analog temperature sensor mm -hmm. and I basically I stuck a digital one on top of the boiler, Okay. sent that one into my controller and then controlling an SSR, which basically like just sends the voltage into the heater. So it, it, it's, yeah. it's actually very simple and very primitive. Now, there are more or more advanced modifications because right now all I can do is pretty much control the heat, right? Mm -hmm. So the, 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 the issue is, so why you want a PID controller in the first place is with the regular temperature sensors on the Sylvia, like you have a, like a temperature band of nearly eight degrees or something. Okay. Like it, it oscillates, right? Um, and now with the PID controller, I can control it at like one degree, pretty much mm -hmm. stable. Um, and with espresso, it's actually very interesting that even like a couple degrees difference, um, you, you can taste the difference. So that's why like the low tech version of this, if you look on the internet, they, they call it temperature surfing. So people basically mm -hmm. figured out, okay, when the heating light goes off, wait that amount of seconds and yeah. or, or basically rinse a little water out of it. So you get to that target temperature, but with the PID controller, it removes all of that out of the way. Yeah. And you, you get total control, basically. Interesting. Yeah, I've I've never... It's my very American roots showing, but I, I tend to do a lot of filter 
coffee and uh, French presses and things like that. But yeah, one of the companies I worked at before we had a a coffee machine, like a big, nice espresso machine. And we are actually doing a project with the maker of the coffee machine to smarten the device. So it had sensors on board. This was a much more like managed machine that did have its own kind of control and things like that. But one of the things that we were doing was plugging in and kind of like pulling all of the sensor values from it. It was really interesting to see what that level of control over the heating management and things like that is. Because yeah, like you said, there's a very specific set of control that you want to use when you are preheating the boiler. And then once you're actually like flowing and things like that, and it's draining water. And I can imagine, especially if you're writing that on your own. So when you, when you wrote the, your own controller, are you, did you port the like PID controller algorithm from the C Arduino library? Or did you write your own in Rust? At first I didn't. So there is a PID crate um, out there, hmm. um, but, it doesn't have one feature that I never got back to upstream, but I'd rather basically ported it later. And and that feature is, so I don't know how much you're into pit controllers. Like I- A little bit. Yeah, I only got started. So you probably know way more than I do. But usually the p-value basically is measured based on the error. Yeah. Now the boiler in is, the boiler in the espresso machine is an integrating system, right? So what happens is when you, especially when you heat up the machine, when you calculate the p-value, uh, the proportion from the error, you always get an overshoot. Like if, if your target temperature is 95 degrees Celsius and you start heating up because it's integrating and because it has a delay of a couple seconds, like you stop heating, then of course, it, because of the mass, it, it still heats. Like you always overshoot the target. It's not that big of a deal, but there is an alternate implementation, which is called uh, basically you... you, you calculate the proportional based on the measurement. So what happens is that as closer you get to your target, a higher proportional will actually act as a like a break, right? So the closer you get mm. to the target, the more it breaks. So it helps actually on, in the ramp up process, basically is when you heat it up from zero or room temperature, basically, like it helps you approach the target in a smooth way and you don't get any overshoot. So that feature is not available in the um, standard PID crates. I'll probably contribute that back at some point. So what, what and, and this is what I copied from, from the other project, basically. Mm -hmm. So what they do is, and when they reach the set point, then they switch to different PID values because you want different values during um, basically cold start. And oh, then when, you, when you're warm, then you want different PID values because the target is different, right? In the beginning, yeah. you want to heat up quickly but then and you're fine. You Maybe want? a little bit of overshoot or undershoot or things like that. But then when you're looking to maintain, you try and it hit a much more tighter control loop. Exactly. And actually, one of the things I haven't implemented yet is in the other project, they have something what they call brew detection, where when you actually brew, mm. you even want other values because right now I run with a derivative of zero, which is fine. But usually during the brew process, you want a little bit higher derivative value so that you, you, you get back more quickly, basically, to your set point. Because as soon as you brew, the temperature drops, right? Yeah. And you want to keep the drop as small as possible and come back to your set point very quickly. So they actually use three different PID values based on the setting. I haven't gotten to that yet. So um, th th there are many, many different things to tweak there. Yeah, it's interesting because I just... So PID control is something that I haven't, I so I tend to do a lot of digital electronics, so I haven't done a ton of control theory, like PID loops or anything like that. But it's funny because I just saw it in another project. So Yash, who's a Rust developer, but he does a lot of web and backend stuff. He actually just wrote a no standard crate called PID Lite. And the thing that he's actually using it for is, I believe, like control flow for backend systems. So for example, if you are trying to like limit the amount of throughput or limit the amount of like concurrent requests and things like that, he actually is using like a PID control algorithm also, not just for like sensor. So definitely like heating control is probably the classical application of PID control, but even using it for things like backend systems is really interesting. And I was wondering if you were using a crate, if there was already one, because I know he just, I think like this week published the PID light crate, but I wasn't I hadn't even seen the original PID crate. So I imagine there's probably a couple PID control libraries <laughs> in the Rust ecosystem right now. Yeah, and they are even like small. Like I, I think the one I ported, which has nearly everything in there, is like probably 200 lines or something. 
Yeah, it's and just, it's, it's a, very math heavy, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it's pretty much a couple of equations. That's that's all there is, um, mm-hmm. and there are a couple of subtleties there which I didn't care about. Like, for example, if you like if you change the set point on demand, there are a couple of things you need to make sure so that it doesn't jump too much, right? And you, you, like you don't introduce instability into the system, but I, I don't really have to care about that. <laughs> so, but that was definitely a, a very interesting experience because what I found, and I, I know that like you have lots of C background, right? But what I found, especially in the Arduino space, and I, I don't mean that in a negative way, but I found that like, for example, the TSIC library for my sensor and also the Arduino code, like for me coming from like a Java distributed systems engineering background, I found the C code very inconsistent with formatting, no comments, no, like it felt like scrambled together, right? To, to a degree. Yeah. And I don't know if, if, if that's the norm, but, but that's something that I like when porting it over to Rust. I mean, one of the things was, of course, like I ported it, the C code to Rust pretty much one-to-one to get a feeling what it's doing but then pretty much refactored it, use extra types, right? So you, mm. you can do so many things with, with, with Rust type system that you just can't express in your C code that changes the shape of the code a lot. And for, in my experience, makes it much clearer. That's one of the things I wrote in my blog post on like putting the TSIC over to Rust. It's like, even if you don't know any Rust or you don't know any C, if, if you see the result code, like you can much easier figure out what it's doing. Like what are the components etc right so so those are the things that i really like about it so what's next on the control project because i know if it's if your hobby projects or anything like my hobby projects they're they're never really done yes there are what 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 are the next feature (laughs) a a million a million things probably on my to-do list uh the first one is ironing out a couple bucks so there is one very interesting that i'm currently trying to figure out which is that when you like when you pull a shot so i have a very like a small 128 128 by 128 display just to give me some debug output the current temperature mm-hmm. and eventually uh, like i want to move it to one of those uh like touch screen displays oh, over cool. here so, so you can actually like change the values on the fly um but one of the things i noted when i pull a shot the display freezes mm-hmm. and i'm like I'm, I'm not sure if it's the display freezing or if it's like my whole thing like the whole controller locking up i and and just before i went into that and i found apparently there's something going on in the temperature reading um, because so with the Sequoia protocol, what happens like it gives you a strobe length, like in the first pile, basically you get the strobe length every time it locks up and then I control C out of my code. I can see it's basically stuck in a delay milliseconds of the strobe length. So I need to go figure out what's going on. Maybe I got like some weird value that delay, uh, delay millis doesn't really want or something. So mm. uh, other than the bug fixing, I mean, next steps are, uh, basically adding Bluetooth support. So so the the touch screen is nice, but what I really want to do is at some point is basically um, control it over my iPad. I, I, d- I really don't want to uh, attach it to the internet. Um, it's, it's just not like, I have so much IoT stuff going on and I don't want my espresso machine um, <laughs> talking to the internet. It's just not needed, right? But what I want is, especially if I debug something or want to, I just want to toy around with it more, controlling it with, my iPhone or my iPad over Bluetooth, uh, PLE sounds and sounds like a fun exercise. So I tried Rubber, but mm. so Rubber uh, is the is the all Rust Bluetooth stack for the Nordic right. devices yeah. written by so, Jonas. Exactly. So I, I got it working, but um, I also talked to Jonas a bit, and it has a couple of shortcomings which I would like to help out at some point. Um, it's just that one of the things I want from it, which ties into the other thing I want to do, is have basically central and peripheral support in one, right? So I know there is the there is this other crate which wraps the NRF soft device basically, mm-hmm. which can do both. And the reason why I want both is so there is another feature which I want to work on, and I already bought a couple of pieces from uh, from Adafruit. <laughs> is so I wanna so some of the very expensive espresso machines have a scale integrated into the mm. drip tray. Yeah, and so the way I brew my espresso is with the brew ratio, right? So yeah. let's say 18 grams in, 45 grams out or something, right? And I like I put my scale underneath and like I do all this stuff. But ideally what I want is basically do that automatically. And I have another NRF sitting around here, which I want to integrate with a battery, which is why I followed you a little bit on your like the the, the battery things you, you, you did recently. Oh, uh, the LiPo stamp. Yeah, I still... Exactly. 
I still need to test that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So because what I want to do is I want to integrate it into the trip tray with a small scale. And then it talks to via Bluetooth to the controller so that it can then basically control the flow and start and stop do, basically pulling my shot automatically. Uh, mm. But to do that, my controller needs to be a central and a peripheral at, at the same time, right? Mm. Um, and I want to do it over Bluetooth because I figured it's it's not really handy if I have to connect and disconnect it with a wire, basically, because if I want to empty my drip tray from the water, like I don't want to unplug cables. I just want to remove the water and then basically put it back in. So, so do you have control over the the pump as well? Or would you also have to kind of unwire that and then wire that up to a relay or something right, like that's that so a, you can... That, yeah, that's mm. the next step. So, and that's what the, the advanced PID projects also have. So basically, the right now I'm at a step one PID, which only controls the temperature and I pull my shots manually. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, the other addition is not that hard, basically. You need to add two more SSRs, one yep. that controls the pump and the other one that controls the three-way solenoid valve that, Mm. is used to basically remove the excess water from from yeah. the water filter basically but controlling those those two is not that complicated it's just wiring it up and finding a place inside the machine where, where i can fit it and and then doing that but once i have that i mean that's probably another one and a half years down the road to, to get it all working figure out the bluetooth stack get it get it working get it tested do you have a cell with the um with analog inputs as well or did you get the digital only one no, uh, the, the the ones I got, it, it's the smallest one, but it can do both analog and digital at the same time. Because when you said the the machine starts acting weird when your heater turns on, that sounded like uh, one of two things to me. It either sounded like if you were powering it from some kind of bus that's connected to the machine itself, if you had like a low voltage or something like that, and it was causing that, or just the electromagnetic interference from the heater kicking on because sometimes there can be like a lot of inductive kickback from turning <laughs> heaters or motors on and things like that and i was wondering if it was causing some kind of like weirdness on the signal line where it was trying to respond to something that wasn't real like if it was trying to do a pulse count for something that wasn't real but it, i also actually, don't know how isolated yeah. your system yeah. is no it actually it freezes up when i pull a shot which actually doesn't turn the heat on immediately but rather ah, uh, removes right. temperature basically so what i think is happening that with this very sudden temperature drop, the sensor might send something back. Like oh, I, I use it in a way where like I power on the sensor with a voltage pin, then uh, basically grab my, my value and then turn it back off. And I, I'm like, I do that every second. And I wonder if because of the temperature drop, the sensor sends something that's not expected. And that's why it's like, I, I see it being stuck in like, probably I calculate the throw length wrong. And then it maybe it sends a super high value to delay milliseconds and it just it looks like it's locked up, but rather it's just waiting, right? It's just blocked. Oh, that's fair. So I'm I'm trying to to debug that next, but not the issue a little bit is with, with the coffee machine project, it's not something that I can just have next on my table, right? So all those experiments <laughs> I do standing next to the coffee machine, and then I'm like, okay, I need to do more coding. Then I go back to my to my desk here to the coding and then go back to the machine. And it's especially tedious when I, I did the, the warm-up experiments because like the cold start, if you want to try different value, like you need to wait two hours so that it cooled down again and then you run your next values, right? So yeah. like the, the, the delay to figure out the right values is time-consuming. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, I mean, it, when I went to visit that coffee maker when I was doing that project with them, it was interesting to see when they were testing all the machines because they just have to make shot after shot of, of espresso, especially the assembly. They would just have a big like 20 liter bucket and they would just make espresso, like some of the best espresso you've ever seen. And they go, sip, okay, throw the rest in the bucket. Like, and they would <laughs> just have this like 20 liter bucket full of espresso. And it's like, well, you got to test the machines, I guess. <laughs> like, yep. So I definitely could see there's only so many tests you can do before you've had too many espressos for the day. Yeah, that's the other thing. Like, so, so, so one of uh, one of the other experiments now I need to work on, and, and this all goes into like me exploring things, is that because I have the, the sensor on top of the boiler, there is a difference between the value it measures and the extra water temperature that comes out of the machine, right? There's a difference. Now, there are expensive water filters you can put in that are like industry grade that like they use for professionally testing machines and figuring everything out, but they are just too expensive for me. So... On the internet, of course, that, like on, on, on espresso enthusiast forums, there are like people who suggest how to 
like measure that delay with styrofoam cups and K thermocouples thermocouples that you basically put in the styrofoam cup and then like you hold it up to the where the water filter would be, you pull a shot, and then like you measure the temperature of the water mm. and trying to figure out what the delta is because only then you know this the, the the setting you set on your machine what the delta is and what the temperature is of the water actually coming out of it. How big is that delta usually? Is that are we talking like half a degree or five degrees or ten? Yeah, I, I, it's. I think it's somewhere in a couple of degrees. Okay. And I, I know that. And I mean that there are like infinite things to try, but that, like some PID systems recommend actually putting the sensor not on top of the boiler, but rather at the side, right? So at a certain height, because especially if you. So my machine is a single boiler machine. So when I want to do a cappuccino, like I need to heat it up and then cool it down. And then of course, like heat goes up, right? So you might end up with some steam at the top of the boiler, which doesn't really represent the accurate value, right? So that would be another thing to try. Basically buy a couple more of the sensors, attach them on various places of the boiler and see what the temperature differences are. But hmm. then the, the, the real issue though is the boiler size is only 300 milliliters. And in oh, wow. expensive machines, it's like much bigger, right? And as with everything, the, the more mass you have, the more stable it is with temperature. So you, you'll never get like a stable temperature profile during a shot, right? All you can do is try to minimize it as much as possible. But to get it even smaller, you really need to basically have more mass that is heated up, right? That's why usually an espresso machine, like you need to heat it up. 20 minutes, 25 minutes, because it's not like you can get the water boiled up pretty quickly, but all the other metal pieces involved in the machine also need to heat up so that like the whole thing has proper temperature when, when, when you pull your shot so that you have a stable reference point. Very cool. How did you get into coffee? So how did like, I guess, uh, <laughs> how did you decide that like espresso was the thing that you were going to focus on? Because I've, there's a couple things that I actively, I actively avoid not because I think they're not interesting, but because I know that I would fall down a rabbit hole. Because when I when I pick up certain things as hobbies, I, I just kind of go off the deep end of them. And I'm like, exactly kind of like what you're doing with your coffee machine now. And so there's a couple things that I actively avoid. And coffee tends to be one of those things where I really enjoy coffee. I make my filter coffee, but... With espresso machines, I've always looked at it and go, I do really enjoy espresso, but that is that is a hobby that I do not need to pick up right now because yeah. I can see how people get into that. But how did you get into that hobby specifically? I think you just said it there. Like most people don't realize when they buy an espresso machine, they basically buy a hobby, right? So for me, it, actually very straightforward. So I, I still do Chemex. I have a Chemex. I have a V60. So I still do filter coffee. And that's what I started with because I just like enjoy drinking it and i've like I, I still like to do pour over it it has this kind of nice attitude where it can relax right so you do some work and then you like you make coffee that's nice but then at some point i was like hmm, i also like espresso maybe i should like get an espresso machine and then i got one for my birthday and then so so, so all that happened there wasn't any specific point in time it was just me being curious basically and i when I wanted an espresso machine, I had no idea that like this whole PID thing existed and I'll probably get into embedded. So it's always nice to be able to apply something like concretely around you. I find that those are the most interesting projects. If you're like exactly like you said with your espresso machine, if you say like, wait, I know how to make this better. Like I know I know how or I, at least I, I want to make this better or like I want to be able to do that. And especially when you have like espresso machines, which are very cool complex mechanic like electromechanical systems but like you said the control theory of them is really like turn the heater on turn the heater off measure the temperature at the boiler maybe measure the temperature at the head maybe like control the the number of inputs and outputs is relatively small which means you have like the ability to kind of influence those really directly so i find those are the most fun projects when it's something that concretely affects so have you had any downtime problems of when you when you've plugged in your control system and you're like all right i'm ready for my espresso and then all of a sudden the system doesn't work at all have you have you run into those problems yet? uh yeah but i i think the easy solution there is i have a small espresso machine on this on the next side to it <laughs> and and the reason for that is like my wife she doesn't like strong espresso and also like when, when i get up in the morning i just can't be bothered with like waiting it to heat up etc so we'll just I just want a quick coffee in the morning um, to basically get me going. So there, there is always the um, the, the fail safe if you want, like straight next to it. 
Um, but but I mean, a couple of things that I had was especially in the beginning was lockups and and one of the things where in the beginning, of course, I always had my laptop attached to it because I want to see what it's doing. And then I ran into this issue where you really helped me out, which was like, okay, now let me run it unplugged, but it didn't do anything. And uh, yeah, yeah. And, and I was like, I have no idea what's going on. It's running fine. And if I just plug it in, it just doesn't do anything, right? It, it just froze and I had no idea. And then you basically sent me down the right part of, oh, y- y- like if if you run it standalone, you, you can't use that, uh, basically that timer. So yeah. So the bug is, well, it was not, not exactly a bug, but Arctic, which is a, a scheduling non-operating system for, for embedded Rust, it has a really cool timer feature, which allows you to schedule tasks in the future. And it does this by default. It uses the cycle counter from the debug information on the microcontroller core. And the problem is on the NRF52, if, if you don't have a debugger attached, that entire chunk of the debugging core is shut down. So the basically the scheduler is looking for a timer that's not running, which means as soon as you try and schedule something, it just never actually happens. And the fix for that is to switch to either one of the like high frequency timers or the low frequency like real time clock timers. But I, I think in I think in Arctic zero six, I think they're either making that more obvious because it, it's one of those things where different microcontrollers work differently. So even though it's a standard debug interface like different microcontrollers will leave that part enabled or still enableable, even though a debugger isn't attached and the Nordic device is just like no debugger attached, no timer. So yeah. it, it's definitely a little different than some other boards. But yeah, I was glad. I was super excited. Whenever I see a problem that I've run into before, I'm always excited to help because I'm like, ah, I have done this. <laughs> I have gone down this rabbit hole before. Here is the answer. And yeah. I, was, I was glad when it actually worked for you. Yeah, and, and it was... That was actually the only real problem where I felt like I was really stuck. Like because I'm I'm like I'm coming from more like high level programming and I'm I'm not into embedded systems. I'm just learning, right? But like I I, I can port C code, like I can understand what it's doing, etc. But like this one, I really felt at a loss because like I couldn't debug it because when I attached the debug, it ran fine. So I was at a loss how to figure out why it's not running. And I like I would have never thought that it's because of what basically you you, you told me how was going on. Very cool. So do you have any other? I know you've also talked about a couple of other embedded projects you're interested. Do you have anything that's uh, next up on your your challenges list? Well, so so one of the things, and that's maybe another auxiliary project to this is that so one of the things i liked about on the on the like esp project from those other espresso guys is they sent telemetry with blink to an upstream server right and i was like okay i I don't want to attach it to the internet but it would be cool if i could just grab them over ble right and and then do something with it because the way i did it is very like quick and dirty so what i did was i just used the format and basically um, dumped everything out every second piped it into a file and then i wrote um, a java program which basically um, tailed that file took the chase basically took the data parsed it and then sent it into a database which then i could graph my data on right so that was my quick and dirty hack, but I thought it would be really cool if I could have something like a um, BLE gateway or BLE proxy that would say, hey, connect to this device, grab those attributes and just send it somewhere, right? And do something with it. Because I have this, this uh, my, my background in databases, right? I was like, hey, cool. I, I want to try this where I could have a couple agents like BLE, MQTT, like have those interfaces towards the embedded side that sends and receives data depending on the rules I define but then takes that information and basically sends it upstream to a database where I can then do something with it. And this is where our like Couchbase mobile site ties into a little bit. So I'm I'm working on Couchbase server, so I don't have much experience with our mobile side of things. But what I know it like it has this thing called the sync gateway, which is this central piece which helps you to synchronize data to your mobile devices, right? So Couchbase mobile works with iOS and Android, etc., but it's not optimized for embedded systems. So I was thinking, hmm, maybe I can prototype something where I take those ideas, the synchronization primitives that we have with channels and authentication and all those things that kind of seem to fit well, like what we talked about, where like you define your um, RBAC rules, you define the data that you sync between your devices or you apply filters, those kind of things. And then 
create a proxy, write it in Rust that on the one hand talks to this sync gateway, but then on the other hand talks to your embedded device over BLE, over MQTT. So of course, with my coffee machine, my first experiment, what I want to do is basically start up the proxy, connect to my controller, act as a central, and then I define the property. So the, the controller exposes certain information like current temperature, et cetera, over BLE. I pull it from my proxy and then basically send it into my database and make that configurable over UI so it's actually um, usable. Then take it from there and see if this something is something that is like useful on a broader scale um, and then extend it from there. But that would be like a minimal POC type of thing where I can also... Because I I have never used BLE, so right now I'm learning how. So there, there was another whole exercise that I did where basically using the Objective-C library in Rust to talk to Core Bluetooth on OS X. Okay. Um, so that I can basically use the... So Core Bluetooth are the libraries on Mac, right? So that you yeah, talk yeah. to BLE. But from Rust, so you, you can't talk to them directly. So you need to go through the Objective-C layer. Mm-hmm. Um, that was another interesting experience. Like I never did any <laughs> Objective-C, um, but it worked. I know there are a couple of crates out there that do this already, but some of them, like they, they don't really do what I what I need exactly. So I was trying to, okay, let me, since this is a learning experience, let me don't just use them, but rather see how they do it and, and redo it as a learning experience and basically try to abstract it and then maybe use Blue Z or Blues. I don't know how do you pronounce it in Linux, basically integrate that as well. Um, and and just, just get a feeling of, of how the whole uh, BLE stack works. So mm. Yeah, I know I've definitely done that on... on linux of of working through bluesy to act as a central device and talking to bluetooth devices but i don't think i've ever tried to do it on mac or windows but i know there are a couple crates out there that that do some uh like portable abstractions over bluetooth and things like that depending on which which version you need but that's super i'll tell you that project that you're doing right now is um I can't share all of the details, but it's it's very similar to what I was paid to do a couple of years ago in terms of like getting the the data from the machine. We were looking for a couple of specific pieces of data that were were important to that manufacturer, but also general purpose data like heating and things like that. And that was one of the big things that we did is we m- managed that data over time and was able to graph things like that. Like what is your mass- maximum oscillation of heating, <laughs> for example, or, or how tightly are you controlling your heating or what is the effect of pouring a shot? on your temperature of your boiler this was a multiple boiler machine but yeah those kind of things so it's it's definitely awesome to hear that you are doing that at a oh i'm just you know improving the machine that i have at home because that's super cool to see that was actually one of the first projects that i was using rust and embedded in actually because i was parsing some of the internal data on the bus of that machine because it did have digital sensors and so I had a, it was actually on embedded Linux. It was on a Raspberry Pi that was essentially listening to the the bus that was going on inside of that machine and parsing that. And the big like parsing state machine of like just listening to all the events on the sensor bus uh, and creating like a digital model of the of the machine was all using Rust because it was a it was a big state machine because basically I just mm-hmm. had like raw events coming in whenever there was like a temperature reading or a pressure reading or a you know, like a, what are they called? The the counters, the flow counters would pulse or things like that. Mm-hmm. And just like turning those into a living digital double representation of, of the machine was was super interesting. And I think that's probably what you'll end up with with your machine is you'll have this kind of like digital model of what the machine is and either like a this time series of different readings and things like that so that's definitely interesting to see and i tend to have a lot of those so definitely like one of my main things is getting digital devices to talk to each other and one of the things that i always wish i had was an easier way for embedded systems to synchronize some kind of state with each other so i have this kind of like home wireless network where i have like a relay control for some lights for some plants and i want to have kind of like a e-paper display on my house that shows some information and things like that and so i have a couple of these wireless devices and each of them have like different pieces of data that they are responsible for and i've written this whole network protocol called anacro that makes it a little easier to do things like pub sub 
So you mentioned MQTT, which is a publish and subscribe protocol, but it's still based over TCP in most cases. So Anacro is very inspired by a lighter version of MQTT called MQTT SN, which is sensor networks. And so it's, it's got way fewer features and it doesn't require TCP. So Anacro has a publish and subscribe model that's very influenced by MQTT SN, where you have like different devices on the network and you can subscribe to topics and you can send to topics and things like that. But one of the things that I almost, that is almost feels like a second order problem is, is that many people have that because that's what they'd like. But I find that often what I'd like is in an ideal world, I essentially just want uh, a table of data that each device can have and that they can share in some way. And that usually you have one device that's in charge of writing that data. And then you have one or more devices that are in charge of reading that data. And they have very little interaction over. So for example, if you had all of the sensors in your machine, you had maybe three temperature sensors, one that controlled the output of the flow, a couple different sensors. You usually have this different table of, of values or table of interactions and things like that. And especially from a computer side, you usually want the whole table. You want to see like all the output from this sensor, all the output from this sensor, all the output of this sensor, and then, you know, the inputs into each of those. And one of the things that I can find myself wanting to build for an Acro is some sort of database in that it's it's kind of like a sharded table of values. And I want to be able to have one unified view over all of the shards, especially from a PC side or from my application side or things like that. I just want to mm -hmm. treat them like different shards in the database, but have all of that information in one place with a with an automated way of, of synchronizing that data. Uh, that's definitely one of the things that I know I want to build for an Acro. So I'm super interested to see what you do with applying some of those concepts from a distributed database where you have these different kind of concepts of what gets synced to where and when and how yep. and applying that in an embedded level. Because those are definitely one of the most common things that I do in almost every distributed computing embedded project that I have is you have to figure out how you wrangle all the shared data between the devices. Yeah, and the interesting property of, and, and it's something I want to explore because I'm not like 100% into it yet is with our Sync Gateway and the mobile product is really the capability of, they call it offline first. So we have like, let, let's say you, like your, your customer writes an application with it and basically a tablet app or something, right? And then they go into the facility where there is no reception, right? So they then go in there and do their like maintenance of whatever, right? And then they, they basically use your app to basically protocol all that, all that information. And then as soon as they leave the facility, once it gets reception automatically, basically it syncs it up. It figures out all the, the diffs, right? Because someone else could have modified that. Uh, you can define rules. So, so all these like synchronization primitives are already there. And for me, the, the thing that I'm interested in is figure out how to apply those technologies or primitives we already have to the embedded side. Like, wh wh where does that fit in? And that's an unknown to me right now, but it's definitely something that I, I'm very curious to explore because there might be really good uh, benefits on, on, on both sides, right? So Yeah, that's super cool. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Anything else that you have going on that you're excited about or stuff that you're working on or stuff that you're interested in working on soon, but not quite sure how you're going to start? Um, well, so a couple other things. One, one other thing that I'm, I'm, I'm working on on the Rust side is, so for our database, I so you probably know about NuShell, right? The, 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 the CLI yeah. written Rust. So we actually took that um, and we talked to Jonathan Turner, who basically uh, runs the project. And they were quite happy with, with us doing that. So basically we, uh, because, and, and that's the nice thing about Rust, right? So you have it as a crate. So we actually consume new as a crate and then add our own Couchbase commands and basically package it up as a new binary. So we are shipping this thing called Couchbase shell, which is like new shell with all the bells and whistles it has, but we added basically Couchbase specific commands to it. And it's really great because what, what you get is like you, because Nushal is so great at like this data pipeline thing, like you open a JSON file, you get the, the data as JSON table decoded, et cetera. And then you can basically use the Couchbase commands, like store the data, run a query, like as part of your pipeline. And suddenly basically you get a full ETL system in your shell, right? And that's just so fun to work with. So, so that's one of the, the Rust side of things at work that I'm... And this is actually the, the first place where... So we have a couple of Rust enthusiasts at the company, but it's not where Rust is not in the product itself. But that's one angle for me where I'm like, I'm, I'm introducing Rust into the companies like with, with Couchbase Shell. And we already have a couple of people picking it up. And 
basically seeing traction with it. And that, that's that's a real fun project also that, that we are currently working on. Super cool. Yeah, I've, I've seen New Shell a little bit and I... I haven't really messed around with New Shell, but I've definitely talked to Jonathan about uh, about New Shell. And it's super exciting to see the kind of things that you can do. Like you said, when you have kind of a more <laughs> expressive shell that understands data as a first class item, sort of like PowerShell did, but but a little bit further in terms of how it represents that and what you can do with it. It's super cool to be able to see you can just do these kind of analysis pipeline things that you would expect to do with with an entire, you know, let's say like a, Python notebook or something like that, but you can do it all at the shell and interactively and then save that. And uh, especially when you start having connectors like that of, okay, I can pull all of my data or I can parse all of my data or I can synchronize all of my data. It's it's super cool to see what people, it's cool to see people back at the shell and working on things. Cause I definitely enjoy working on the shell for a lot of that data manipulation and things like that. And being able to have more expressive tools on the shell, like new shell is, is super super neat. right and one of the things that we found that is uh, like at first of course i thought okay what can developers do with it but one of the things that we introduced and that i found really surprising but it's so great is that we added like management ops type commands to it so you can say for example show me the status of all my nodes in my five clusters right and it lists it to you and then you can use the new commands to say okay this command where so you can filter by all those that maybe have indexes that are not online, whatever, right? And then you end up with this data that is actually system status of, of, of the clusters. And then you store that in JSON and then you run that whole command every hour as part of your like ops procedures, right? So so the idea that it's it's not only for developers, but also for operations that suddenly can basically look at the cluster as data, right? Because usually what happens is you just monitor your cluster or you basically you send it into some monitoring system, but usually it basically just collects dust, right? And then you need to go into the systems and then you have time series data and you need to figure out what to do with it. But if you have it in your shell, right? And then you can run those commands on it that actually looks like just regular document data, but it's it's rather state of your cluster. That's really fun fun to work with. Uh, that, that's what I'm always striving for is basically if you have fun at work, right? Like it, it's just it's just a different ballgame. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Now now I'm figuring now I need to figure out how to make a anacro to couch base adapter so and then integrate that with new shell so I can start making <laughs> queries of how long my playlights have been on or how much motion or heat isn't going on in my apartment. So yeah, I, I've avoided making a dashboard right now. So it, it does publish and subscribe, but I have nothing listening to it. So really the publish and subscribe mostly just gets used for me occasionally overriding the plant light control when I'm having a uh, a conference call or something like that. So I don't have a big purple light on in my face when I'm taking a call in the living room. But so now, now I'm curious with your plants, how, how do you how do you have is it an irrigation system for your plants or a lighting system? Right now it's just lighting. So it's just doing like timing based lighting control. And then I have a little CLI app that talks to the like communications bus and I can say something like disable the lights for 60 minutes. Like if I'm going to be on a call, I can just say disable the lights for 60 minutes and it will inhibit the lights for 60 minutes and then it will pop back on to its regular timer schedule after that. The plan is to have, I've got one set of plants in my living room. So we have all like the, you know, oxygen producing plants for when we're in there. And then I'm just building a second shelf in my kitchen to have like a spices and seasonings and stuff or you know those kind of plants in the kitchen so i have you know basil and thyme and whatever things that i use in cooking all of the time and but do yeah. you plan to add irrigation as well or is it that's too complicated <sighs> i've thought about it but i run into a problem that all of the irrigation sensors are either terrible or expensive and <laughs> i haven't decided what i want to do so like the the classic like hobbyist way of there's kind of like two cheap hobbyist ways of measuring how much moisture you have in the in the soil. So if you're doing like closed loop control where you you know how much water is in the is in the plants, there's either like a resistive probe or a capacitive probe. And the problem with both of these is you're essentially like it's a PCB that you're sticking into the plant and because it's constantly wet, the PCB material just basically breaks down over time and it's terrible and they, you have to replace them. So all of these like one or two or three euro kits that you buy off the internet that are like a moisture probe are those and they work fine for like anywhere from a month to six months and then you have to replace them because they either fall out of calibration yeah. or things like that the nicer ones are usually like 
stainless steel probes where you have two metal stainless steel probes that you measure conductivity through. And those last much longer, but those are typically much more expensive, like in Mm -hmm. the five to 20 euro range just for Mm -hmm. the sensor probes. And then you need something that listens to that. And I have a bunch of very small pots, so I might have like 20, 30, 40, 50 Uh. planters. And so if I'm buying five euros of probes for 50 planters, I haven't had the money or inspiration for that yet. And then I need to have like pump controls into each of those. So I think I like what I either need to do is I need to switch over to having like one plant trough per shelf so that I have like, you know, just a couple Mm. like drip irrigation probes or like moisture probes on each shelf. Or I need to just admit that I'm okay with open loop control and just have like pumps that fire at some kind of timer interval or like I'm doing right now, just watering the plants once a day and letting (laughs) the lights be automatically controlled. Right. Because like I thought about something similar and for me, the the biggest issue was I like for most of the plants in our apartment, I have no idea how to get the water there. Right. It's like maybe in the kitchen, I can do something with like the the, the faucet and like, okay, I have water in the kitchen, but I don't have water in the living room. Like, and I'm not going to build pipes basically throughout my my living room just for, for the watering. Yeah, having a reservoir for that is actually somewhat, especially when you're starting out, is somewhat a feature rather than having it connected. It's it's less automatic. But mm. if you only have a reservoir with one liter of water in it, it means the maximum amount of damage you can do <laughs> is one liter yeah. of damage. So if your pump just decides to go on all of the time and pump that, if you have it hooked up to the wall, it can pump for forever. Whereas if you only have a one liter reservoir, you can only do one liter of damage. So yeah, for my living room, I'd probably also just have a, okay, let's say, one liter is figure out how much I need in a day and still probably top up the the bucket once a day, especially before I go on vacation and things like that. Uh, mm. I, I haven't been brave enough to leave the, uh, well, I haven't controlled water yet, but yeah, I definitely, it would be something that I'd be like, oh no, what am I, like if I, if I hook up five liters of water for when I'm on vacation, I'm going to be like, all right, how much damage could that five liters do? <laughs> yeah. Am yeah, I going to need my renter's true. insurance for this? Yep, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> very cool. cool well we're about at the end of our hour so it's been excellent talking to you i'm super excited to see what you uh what you end up building for your coffee machine and hopefully i hope that it doesn't inspire me too much to go and get into the <laughs> coffee machine habit but uh hopefully i can live vicariously through your project and be excited to see the kinds of espresso that you're building We'll definitely keep in touch because I'm sure I'll have more questions. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So before I wrap up, is there anything anything you want to plug, anything you want people to go look at, anything you want to make sure people go and look into after they hear this? Well, so maybe we could, like, I'm Tashl on, on Twitter. Uh, if, if you're interested, especially like if you're in the espresso world or if your interest like is, is in that topic, like, please hit me up. Um, I'm, I'm super happy to like talk about those kinds of topics that we just discussed and I'm, I'm i'm always happy to like share experiences and also like bounce off other ideas um, so yeah that's that and um m- maybe i should do this too right i mean so if, if you're looking for a database that's great uh, maybe take a look at couchbase i um I, I again like i've been there for eight years and maybe of course i'm biased but i think we we we, re- we really built and we're still building a very good product and we have lots of customers out there that really depend on it on every day. So it's not some hobbyist project. It's a pretty serious thing. So yeah, and if you have database questions in general, you can also hit me up on Twitter. Um, yeah, and then take it from there. Very cool. Well, thanks so much. Uh, thanks again for taking some time to talk to me and I'm looking forward to talking to you soon. Yes, thanks. Have a good day. Bye. You Bye. too. Bye.